0: This is Guns and
1: Butter. If you consider that 9-11 was a psychological operation, it was designed to traumatize people and to prevent people from discovering the truth, then the very means that they look for to accomplish the attack are the ones that will simply have a high unbelievability factor around. So when you talk of high energy weapons, it just sounds it just sounds like science fiction.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Jim Hoffman. Today's show, Your Eyes Don't Lie. Common Sense, Physics, and the World Trade Center Collapses. Part two. Jim Hoffman is a software engineer and research scientist. His work in applying scientific visualization to mathematics was instrumental in the discovery of the first new examples of complete embedded minimal surfaces in over 100 years. His work was featured in articles in Science News, Scientific American, Science Digest, and Nature. He discovered new three-dimensional morphologies for modeling block copolymers, systems used in a kind of nanotechnology and co-authored papers in science and macromolecules. He collaborated in the development of new inventions in combustion engineering and is co-author of a patent for an internal combustion engine with increased thermal efficiency. Jim Hoffman has been researching the World Trade Center collapses since February of 2003 and has created an extensive website reporting his investigations and other aspects of the September 11th attack at www.wtc7.net. He uses common sense and physics to analyze the collapse of the World Trade Center. Now, Jim, you have described the collapse of World Trade Center 7 as an implosion. That's right. But when you talk about the Twin Towers... The North Tower, the South Tower, mm-hmm. you have described their collapse as an explosion. Let's look at the Twin Towers. Which tower collapsed? Well, first of all, a plane hit each of those towers, right?
1: Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm.
0: Which tower collapsed first?
1: Now, the South Tower collapsed first, but the South Tower was the second to be hit. And it collapsed first, even though it was uh, f- the damage was far less than from the North Tower, and the fires were far less severe in the South Tower as well. The south tower collapsed after only 56 minutes, whereas the north tower lasted 102 minutes before it totally collapsed.
0: Now, is the south tower the tower where the plane sort of went through the corner of it? That's
1: correct. It was an indirect blow. The hit to the north tower was centered at about the 96th floor, and um, that could have caused some damage to the core of the building. Whereas the um, hit on the south tower hit about two-thirds of the way over on the south face of the south tower and the plane was at an angle. So you could actually see the fuselage emerging from the opposite corner of the building. So and if you plot the trajectory of the plane through the building, you see that it almost entirely misses the core structure of the building. So not only did this building only have about 10 or 11 percent of its perimeter columns broken by the impacting jet, it probably had almost all of its core structure intact. And it had fires that were so fuel-starved by the end or so oxygen-starved that they were emitting black smoke. And according to reports from the New York Fire Department of firefighters that were high in this building, they had a plan to put out this fire. They weren't even particularly concerned or there was no sign of panic or anything. They had a plan to put this fire out. And that's when the tower came down, just as this fire was seemed to be smoldering out. No steel-frame building has ever collapsed due to fires, however severe. Steel frame buildings have been in use for over a hundred years and there are numerous examples of severe fires in such buildings that have raged out of control for numerous hours, you know, far more severe than any of the fires in the three skyscrapers in Manhattan on September 11th the Twin Towers and Building 7. Examples include the 1991 One Meridian Plaza fire in Philadelphia which raged for 18 hours and gutted eight floors of this 38 floor building this fire didn't damage the vertical columns of this building, nor did the 1988 first interstate bank building fire in Los Angeles damage any of the critical structural elements of this building. In fact, Ilkham, a company that specializes in analyzing um, damage to buildings and fires, concluded that none of the columns in this building were even damaged by this fire that lasted for four hours and gutted several floors. So it's just the nature of steel that fires don't – the structure of these buildings isn't compromised by fires because – It has to do with the melting point of steel, with the temperatures that you have to elevate steel to before it loses most of its strength, and the fact that steel has high thermal conductivity. And because the steel structure of these buildings is highly linked, that is, there's large continuous spans of steel, these steel columns are long, continuous pieces of metal, that if heat is delivered to one part of it, it quickly conducts the heat away. And even though you can have fires in buildings that locally can reach temperatures of as high as 8 or even 900 degrees Celsius momentarily, the temperatures that the steel structures in these buildings can reach is considerably lower. In fact, there have been extensive tests conducted by Corus Construction Company in multiple countries in which steel frame car parks, and these were uninsulated structures, were subjected to prolonged hydrocarbon-fueled fires going on for hours. And they recorded the temperatures in the steel beams and columns in these buildings, and the highest temperature they recorded in any of these tests was 360 degrees Celsius. At 360 degrees Celsius, steel only loses one percent of its structural steel only loses about 1 percent of its strength.
0: So the South Tower collapsed first, but it was hit by a plane second.
1: That's right. But getting back to what you were asking about the explosion versus the implosion. Now an implosion, as it implies, consists of a building falling to its footprint and not falling outwards but falling inwards and there's some smoke and everything, but it just it falls very neatly into its footprint. I describe the collapse of the Twin Towers as explosions because clearly what happened, again, just go to the web and look at the videos of this. There's a number of videos that show very clearly what these events looked like. These towers mushroomed into vast clouds of dust, clouds of pulverized concrete that were already mushrooming to vast size before they even got very far down the building. In both cases, these exploding tops, then these clouds of pulverized material were growing at a rate of about 50 feet per second, and they were just consuming the towers as they descended. In both cases, they grew to about three times the diameter of the towers within five seconds and about five times the diameter of each tower by the time they reached the ground between about 12 and 13 seconds.
0: Well, Jim, that brings me to an article that you wrote called The North Tower's Dust Cloud, Analysis of Energy Requirements for the Expansion of the Dust Cloud Following the Collapse of One World Trade Center. You have written that it would require a lot of energy to bring the building down and form the gray dust clouds that mm-hmm. it does form. I believe you refer to them as pyroclastic clouds. Right.
1: Okay. Let me uh, start with just kind of a narrative of the, the nature of these events. It's it's similar in both the North and South Tower. The South Tower is a little bit different in that you can see the top of the South Tower tip. There was a larger portion of the South Tower above the crash zone than the North Tower. There's about 30 stories above the crash zone in the South Tower. So it started at a tip, and that looks sort of, you know, that's sort of realistic. That's what you expect. That if a building falls down, it would tip from the region of damage like in top of like a tree. But if you watch the South Tower, it it starts to tip but then it stops tipping and then the whole top of the building just basically disintegrates and then starts exploding into this cloud of dust. Now, in both cases, the production of this thick pulverized concrete dust, you can tell it's very thick, it's these opaque clouds, starts to puff out of the building very early in the event. Like within the first two seconds, you see large volumes of dust exuding from the building and, and just racing out of the building. You also see what are known as squibs, which are high-velocity gas ejections occurring well below this zone of complete destruction. You see these just jets emerge at a speed of over 200 feet per second, and that's a characteristic feature of explosive demolitions. You you have these very high-velocity jets that are caused by the explosive charges. Now, in terms of the nature of these events, and one talks about explosions or I describe them as explosive disintegrations or something in those terms, is that they weren't discrete explosions. Even though there is some evidence that there were some localized small explosions, but on the whole, the event was a smooth wave. There is video of it that has soundtracks. That you can that has a soundtrack that you can hear. It sounds almost like an ocean wave. It's just kind of a roar, a white noise or pink noise. It's just very continuous. So I think that's one of the reasons people tend to discount the notion of demolition because they think, well, if there were explosions, I would have heard discrete explosions. Well, for the most part, there weren't discrete explosions. There were just This continuous explosion in both cases that lasted for about 15 seconds, it took, depending on what part of this huge cloud that's consuming these buildings traveling to the ground, you look at it, it took about 12 to 15 to 16 seconds for the destruction to travel and completely reach the ground. Now, this dense cloud of dust that these buildings were being converted into in midair that started very early in these events – we often talk about as a pyroclastic cloud. That's a term from volcanology that describes a dense suspension of solids in air or some fluid that behaves almost as a separate fluid. It expands and doesn't mix very much with the surrounding air. It's not like a a smoke cloud that the smoke clouds are rising from the towers. These pyroclastic clouds that had all this pulverized material were traveling down. They were pulled by gravity. They're very dense. But they remain distinct from the surrounding air and they continue to expand. And this paper that you're referring to, I examined the cloud from the North Tower, which continued to expand even after the tower reached the ground and continued to remain distinct, very distinct boundaries, very opaque, and and it just raced down the streets at about 30 miles an hour. And there's a photograph that's in the FEMA report that's taken from about 30 seconds after the initiation of the North Tower collapse in which I was able to estimate the volume of the cloud by taking numerous sample points and I made a conservative estimate of the volume of the cloud and that it's about five times the volume of the original building. Now, even in controlled demolitions, the amount of explosive charges isn't so great and you tend to get a lot of dust with the controlled demolition, but it's usually not much larger than the size of the original building because after all, think about it, where did all this – material come from. It was gases and solids inside the original building, and it, the building gets blown up, and it's basically just a little bit larger than the size of the building. There's some mixing with the ambient air. So in my paper, I make this estimate, and then I factor out why well, I, I assume there's probably some mixing with the surrounding air, even though I don't think very much, because as I said, this pyroclastic cloud is behaving as its own fluid and it's so much denser than the surrounding air that it doesn't mix, at least in the early part of this event. It takes several minutes before it gets more diffuse. So I calculate the size of this, even making a conservative estimate, even accounting for some mixing and saying, oh, it's maybe 3.5 times the original volume. And to achieve that level of expansion, there's basically – If you discount the notion of explosives, now explosives could turn a lot of solid matter into gaseous phase molecules, introduce more gases in the form of the products of the explosives and that could account for some expansion. But excluding that, I see really only two ways that you could achieve that expansion. Number one, through thermodynamic expansion of the gases, you know, the air, whatever, that's part of this cloud because the ideal gas law says that the volume of a gas subject to constant pressure is directly proportional to its absolute temperature. So there's an easy calculation you can make about the amount of energy that's required to achieve a given amount of expansion there. The other cause that could cause the expansion is the conversion of water. There's a number of sources of water that were in the building, like in the plumbing system, maybe in cisterns, various things. When water is vaporized, and that only requires raising it to the boiling point of water, a lot of energy is required, but it expands it greatly because the expansion ratio of water to steam is about 1800 to one. So that could account for a lot of the expansion. Now, based on which of those two factors is dominant, I get different estimates of the total amount of energy required to achieve the expansion. But in both cases, it's far greater than the available energy from the elevated mass of the building, the gravitational potential energy, which is on the order of 111,000 kilowatt hours. The estimate that I get by ignoring water vaporization and only looking at the thermodynamic expansion of the gases, is about 400,000 kilowatt hours, already almost four times the gravitational energy budget. But then if you factor in the fact that you would also have to heat up all of the suspended materials in the cloud because the heat would um, exchange between the gases and the suspended solids, and depending on what your estimate is of the amount of suspended solids at that 30-second mark, it could be as great as 11 million kilowatt hours of energy. Okay, so that's the one calculation. The other calculation is just looking at water vaporization and assuming that it's not supply limited, that there's enough water to soak up all the heat that's there to produce the amount of expansion. And um, using that estimate, I get 1.4 million kilowatt hours, which is, you know, more than 10 times as great as the gravitational energy budget. And keep in mind here that The gravitational energy, which is supposedly the source that was driving all this destruction, you can't possibly imagine that even if there were enough energy available – and there's clearly this huge imbalance, this huge lack of energy sufficient to drive these heat sinks that I described to accomplish the expansion of the dust cloud – it 's inconceivable that even a significant percentage of that gravitational energy could be converted into heat because most of the mass of the buildings was falling outside the building 's footprint by the time it reached the ground it would have just the energy would have been dissipated into ground shaking or, or something else and also this calculation when i 'm looking at these energy calculations here i 'm not accounting for the amount of energy that it took to pulverize all that concrete, which is itself a huge energy sink, just the estimate of the amount of energy required to pulverize the concrete the concrete being the approximately four-inch thick floor slabs that were on all the floors throughout the building, that was really the only concrete in these 100% steel frame buildings, was 135 kilowatt hours, which is already more than the gravitational energy budget.
0: Could you explain what an energy sink is? And then it sounds to me that what you are saying is that the size of the dust clouds were so large that that means that, a tremendous amount of energy went into creating these clouds. Is that what you're saying? That's right. You're basing it on the size of the dust cloud. Right,
1: right. I see. So an energy sink is just, that's a way of thinking about energy flows where you have a source and a sink. And if you have a given form of energy, the sources have to account for the sink. So you have to have enough energy in the sources to satisfy the sink. So if we're talking about, say, heat energy, the heat had to come from somewhere, and then if it gets used up into something, it went to somewhere. So... Energy can get converted from one form to another, but to look at any given stage in that, you can um, talk about the sources in the sinks and the sources of energy have to be sufficient to drive the sink. So the energy is coming from the source and it's being used by the sink. So it's just a way of looking at how the energy balance is out.
0: So the sink is what the energy is being converted into. Yeah, right, exactly. From solid concrete to a dust cloud, let's say.
1: Well, let's see. Uh, So if you're talking about, yeah, pulverization, pulverization would be an energy sink because that's maybe you could have like heat energy that's being converted to... We say evaporating water in the concrete, there's residual water in concrete, and then that's being converted to the mechanical energy of exploding the concrete and converting it to fine powder. Now, getting back to the nature of these events, it's very striking that all of that concrete in these buildings, and there were, what was there, 90,000 tons of concrete in each building or something like that was thoroughly pulverized. In both towers, it was thoroughly pulverized. The evidence is that ground zero, if you study the photographs and if you talk to people that were at ground zero, there were virtually no large chunks of concrete or even gravel or chunks of any size. It was just fine powder and it blanketed lower Manhattan. And it's just striking how thorough the conversion of these buildings into dust was. The only parts of these buildings that survived in any recognizable form at all was the structural steel, and all that was chopped up into pretty small pieces. Virtually all the solid, non-metallic parts of these buildings was converted to fine dust. The windows in these buildings was completely pulverized. There wasn't, like, you know, shards of glass anywhere. Those windows were just completely—were turned to microscopic particles. Same for the gypsum in the buildings and all the floor slabs. They were just— thoroughly pulverized.
0: I have read that molten steel was observed in pits below the Twin Towers up to a month or more after the collapse. And also, I believe you had mentioned to me that some of the steel was melted to the point where it draped over the ruins.
1: Oh, well, several things. Let's talk about the molten steel first. It took months to excavate the sites because these buildings, the Twin Towers and some of the other buildings in the World Trade Center complex were on top of a, a deep sub-basement that was a seven stories deep. There was this whole foundation. There was all kinds of subterranean roads and subways and stuff under there. And the rubble pile was only a couple stories high, but it filled this entire sub-basement. When it was finally excavated, which was several months after it happened, I mean, it was I think it was maybe March or April of 2002 when they finally got to the bottom and excavated all this rubble, even at the accelerated rate at which this excavation was being done, it was expected to take a year and it only took less than six months. When they got to the bottom, they discovered that there were large pools of previously molten steel, according to some of the presidents of the companies that were contracted to Clean Up Ground Zero, Steve Tully of Tully Construction and Mark Lazo of Control Demolition Inc. both reported that there were large pools of molten steel. Now, it's just completely implausible that any kind of hydrocarbon fire could have produced the necessary temperatures, let alone concentrated the temperatures in such a way as to melt large amounts of steel. We've talked a little bit before about the fire temperatures possible with hydrocarbons versus the melting point of steel. So there's evidence of huge energy deficit here, not only in the rubble Fires, which continued to burn, but this previously molten steel that was discovered months later at the foundations now, whereas the non metallic solids in the buildings were for the most part pulverized to microscopic particles, with the curious exception of the paper. I mean, there were papers littered everywhere amongst all this fine powder that the windows and the concrete and the gypsum and the even various hydrocarbons got converted into that was just all over lower Manhattan. The only parts that survived in any sizable pieces were the structural steel of the building and some of the metal contents of maybe file cabinets, things like that. Even those – a lot of those were melted. But it's striking that the steel itself – well, several things about it. Not only was it uh, chopped up into short pieces, it was also thoroughly cleansed of its spray-on insulation because all the steel throughout this building apparently was – covered with an inch or two of spray-on insulation, and yet, if you look at ground zero, there's no evidence that any of the steel has any of this insulation on it. It's as if the blast pressures were so high that they just cleansed this insulation off the building, and the analysis of the dust samples revealed that there's a significant component of fiberglass in amongst the concrete powder and other things, so it's, apparently it just got blown away and mixed in with all this fine powder that was floating around. In addition, the steel, if you look at some of the pictures of Ground Zero, you see that it looks like the steel had been melted as it was falling or softened as it was falling because you see large pieces of steel like draped over World Trade Center 3, one of the buildings that was largely crushed by the fallout from the north and the south tower. And they look like wet noodles covering these buildings. Also photographs from World Trade Center 6, large parts of which were crushed by the falling debris. It's very striking the way the steel beams look like, you know, kind of look wet noodles. Moreover, some of the studies, even that appeared in the FEMA report, interestingly, in one of the appendices, talk about some limited studies of the steel that show some very peculiar features like intragranular melting, like rapid oxidation, like entire pieces, uh, thick pieces of steel, a few inches thick are oxidized away so that they become like thin scrolls. Other reports describe some of the steel as looking like Swiss cheese. All of this makes no sense in terms of the official story. I mean, hydrocarbon fires would never do that to steel. It's something very energetic was going on here. Also, residues of sulfur were discovered in the steel. Um, where did that come from?
0: So the mystery here is how were the buildings collapsed? They didn't collapse because airplanes hit them. And as you have said, it would have taken a tremendous amount of energy to bring the buildings down and bring them down that quickly and mm-hmm. pulverize all the concrete, the glass, melt the steel, because obviously the, the steel was molten. Mm-hmm. These were huge mm-hmm. buildings. So the mystery here is how did the buildings collapse?
1: It gets um, speculative to talk about what actually caused these events, because whereas we can talk with some certainty about what's true of the evidence and what Whether or not it fits the official story, which it clearly doesn't, the official story clearly cannot account for what happened.
0: Can we talk about how World Trade Center 7, for instance, collapsed? Now, the FEMA report, there's a quote here from the FEMA report, which says the cause of the collapse, and we're talking about World Trade Center 7 here, the smaller Mm. building, has never been determined. FEMA's Building Performance Study, the only government document that addressed the collapse of Building 7, in any detail stated. The specifics of the fires in World Trade Center 7 and how they caused the building to collapse remain unknown at this time. Further research, investigation, and analysis are needed to resolve the issue. But could a controlled demolition account for the collapse of World Trade Center 7?
1: Yes, probably so. Certainly the most Popular theory of building seven is that it was a conventional demolition that which you know is well understood how that 's done in terms of the placement of the charges and certainly the the imagery seems to fit that. You see the characteristic streamers coming off the building as smoke emerges from it, the way that the building sloughs into its footprint. So, you know, that's the most popular theory that it was just pretty much a conventional demolition. So it, that's
0: a possibility. Yeah, yeah That's uh-huh. a realistic possibility. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I just wanted to highlight that quote there. It's very interesting that even the official government report that supposedly explains all these events – Clearly, they're not committing to any understanding of it. They're implying that the fires did it. But, you know, if you read the report, it's clear that they don't have a clue or that they're not admitting to have a clue. They don't, uh, you know, dare not mention any demolition theories, but they talk about the potential energy of the diesel fuel, which completely ignores how that potential energy could be harnessed to produce this uh, this result.
0: With regard to the collapse of the two twin towers, mm-hmm. that's a much harder collapse to explain, isn't it?
1: I think so. It's still the case that the most popular theory among the skeptics of the official story is that it was a demolition. Now, of course, it doesn't look like a conventional demolition like Building 7, but it's important to note that you could demolish a building in any number of ways. You don't have to demolish it in the standard way. If the explosive charges were timed to go off starting at the collapse zone and then they were marched down the building as the rubble advanced down the building, that you, know, you could see at least in terms of the gross features of the collapse that that might be explainable in terms of just the buildings being rigged by explosive charges. Let me talk a little bit more about that. That is the most popular theory – as I said, of the collapse of the Twin Towers. As I said, the most popular skeptics theory of the Twin Towers that rejects the official story is also that they were thoroughly rigged with explosive charges. And I noted that the charges had to be timed to be set off in a way that would march down the building instead of starting at the bottom and going up. They would start at the collision zone and go down. But in not only that respect, but in other respects, they would have to be different from, you know, the typical demolition in that also there would have to be much more explosives used because of the tremendous exploding dust clouds and the thorough polarization of the solids inside the building which makes me skeptical of conventional demolition theory, what I call a distributed explosive theory because of the amount of explosives you'd need even with high explosives to accomplish the expansion of the dust cloud that I calculate, you'd need about 16 tons of high explosives like ametol.
0: But what I want to ask you about that, now, Van Romero, the demolition expert from Albuquerque, Uh New Mexico, didn't he say in the article that it wouldn't have taken that many
1: explosives? Well, I don't know if he did any calculations on on the expansion of the dust cloud or that lateral energy of casting all the materials of the building in all directions simultaneously. But what his statement might be based on is the fact that in a conventional demolition, the amount of explosives used isn't necessarily that great because it's enough to um, destroy the key structural vertical supports of the building. But then as the building falls, they actually harness a lot of the kinetic energy of the falling building to accomplish a lot of the work. Now, that wasn't the case in the Twin Towers because the Twin Towers were blown up from the top down. And so there was only a relatively small amount of the building above the collapse zone, which certainly couldn't be counted on to do much of the work of destroying these buildings. Particularly in the North Tower, you only had 15 floors, very lightweight construction above the crash zone, which couldn't be counted on to do much of the destruction, particularly considering the way that these buildings blew out. Probably 80 or 90 percent of the mass of these buildings was falling outside the footprint of the building, which completely invalidates the official story because how could the mass above the crash zone be crushing these buildings when the vast majority of this mass isn't even falling in a way that's aligned with the part of the building it's supposed to be crushed. It's falling outside the building. The building is disintegrating as rapidly inside of its footprint, inside the profile of the building, where the building was. That's disappearing just as rapidly as this material that's falling freely through the air outside of the profile of the building. So anyway, there are features of the disintegration, the explosive destruction of the towers that make me skeptical that a conventional demolition setup could have accomplished it because even though it's certainly plausible that the buildings could have been rigged with enough explosives, you know, 16 tons isn't that much, and they could have been radio controlled so as to set them off in a precise manner and so forth, there's a number of factors which make me skeptical of that such as the lack of evidence of high overpressures in the first second or two of the collapses. You don't see the walls blowing out right away. You see them kind of sloughing down into themselves and then these ev- evolution of these huge dust clouds as they just kind of fall into themselves. Also, the thoroughness of the pulverization of the concrete makes me wonder about conventional demolition as well because with explosive charges, the destructive power of the charge falls off with the square of the distance from the charge. So if you even have like a chunk of concrete 40 feet away from the nearest charge, you need a pretty strong charge to make sure that that gets pulverized. And it just doesn't seem plausible to me because the analysis of the dust reveals that most of the uh, dust was probably less than 100 microns in diameter. That's thinner than the human hair. And this is just so thorough, so consistent throughout the building. So it makes me wonder how conventional charges could have accomplished such thorough and consistent destruction.
0: I'm speaking with software engineer and research scientist, Jim Hoffman. Today's show, your eyes don't lie. Common sense, physics, and the World Trade Center collapses, part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have your own theory in terms of what may have caused the twin towers to collapse. A theory about what could have generated the amount of energy that in your opinion was required to collapse the Twin Towers?
1: Well, it's sort of a working theory. It's somewhat speculative, but I think it's physically possible. And it's not really a theory of where the energy came from, but how the energy was delivered to where it was required to produce the observed destruction. And first, I would like to point out that there are, we had talked about conventional or distributed explosives theories, which are kind of the most obvious theory that you'd come up with. Well, there were explosives distributed, say, above the, ceiling tiles throughout the the towers and they were precisely timed to go off and produce this simulation of a, quote, progressive collapse in which the tower just disintegrates from the top down. But there's a number of more subtle features in the collapses that I don't think are adequately explained by a conventional explosives theory. There's things like the lack of overpressures that are observed in the first about two seconds of each collapse in which you don't see the walls just blowing out as I'd expect you'd see if there were high explosives in there. Rather, you see the whole thing just telescope into itself, like the North Tower just neatly telescopes into itself, and then it starts to puff out with all this pulverized concrete. Another feature is the fineness of the pulverization of, uh, particularly, the floor slabs, in which there's hardly any evidence of, like, even gravel sized pieces. It's the concrete throughout these buildings was just thoroughly pulverized. And in order to do that with conventional explosives, you would need to have the explosives very widely distributed given that the blast pressure from an explosion falls off inversely proportionate to the square of the distance from the source of the explosion. And it just seems like you'd need a lot of very high explosives and just thousands of individual packages of them to accomplish that level of consistency of pulverization of the um, non-metallic components of these buildings. There's another rather peculiar feature that is widely observed on some websites, the persistence of the North Tower Spire, which is a fragment of the core structure that goes up well above the height of Building 7, up maybe 800 feet, that lasts about 30 seconds before it collapses. And I would imagine that if, with conventional explosives, that the lateral forces would just rip apart any structure like that. So this rather sci-fi theory that I have is, a name for it is uh, microwave interferometry, but it's a particular configuration of microwave beams that could have been driven by some kind of device that was, say, trucked in to the basements of the towers. Now there were these large subterranean, there were roads and things in this deep sub-basements of the towers, so there's a way you could drive a truck into there. And you could have a maser, say, which is pumped by some source of energy. And I don't know how you'd pipe the energy in. Based on my analysis of the North Tower dust cloud, I'm thinking that energy in the neighborhood of 1.5 gigawatt hours was required to produce this destruction. And that energy would have had to have been delivered in about 15 seconds because that's how long it took this wave of demolition to travel from the crash zone down to the ground. However, it seems – I mean that's a huge amount of energy and it kind of stretches the imagination to wonder how they would have piped that much energy into this device that created these microwave beams but I calculated to take something like a copper cable, maybe a foot thick, maybe a little less to deliver that much energy. Furthermore, since Building 7 straddled a Con Ed electrical substation, that might have had something to do with the delivery of energy or maybe even the storage of the energy. Perhaps they had banks of supercapacitors or something to provide the energy to deliver it when the towers were actually destroyed. Now, about the specifics of how these microwave beams would have worked, my theory is that they had coaxial microwave beams that were sort of conical In other words, they originated from the point source down in the basement and it's like a narrow cone that kind of grows as it extends up, thereby encompassing almost all the tower except for the lower part of the perimeter walls, which as I mentioned were the one part of the building that survived above the rubble pile. And if you have microwave radiation in the region of say the centimeter wavelength, microwave radiation is another form of electromagnetic radiation just like radio waves and light, visible light and x-rays and that kind of thing. But microwaves are invisible to solid material. So you can project microwaves right through solid material, but the material, depending on the type of material, will pick it up or not pick it up. So you can imagine a microwave beam being beamed through the building. But the key part of this theory is this idea of interferometry. And what that means is that when you have coherent electromagnetic radiation, so you have, imagine, a, a wave like even light or a much longer wavelength, Coherent means that all the waves are aligned and vibrating in the same direction. So think of it like a wave, like, you know, like a sound wave. It's just an oscillating energy field. And if you imagine that you have multiple superimposed beams with the same source, they're coaxial, so they're projected in precisely the same geometry. They originate from the same device. That each one of them is independently controlled. You can precisely control the zones at which these waves do what is called constructively and destructively interfere. Now, constructive interference has the effect that the waves will add together, so you'll get all this energy manifesting in one part of the beam, say, at maybe a 1,000 feet above the source, whereas destructive interference can be used to cancel out the beam everywhere else. So you'd have these multiple superimposed beams that are being projected up through the building, and the phase shifts and the wavelengths of the individual components are being precisely controlled so as to generate a zone of constructive interference, a fairly precise zone of constructive interference that delivers the energy to wherever they want to. So they start at the crash zone where the planes hit and that starts to break up the buildings at those points. And then they vary the wavelength so that they march this zone of constructive interference down the building, causing thorough destruction of the building as this rubble is falling through the air and keep it just slightly ahead of the falling rubble so that you don't see the building falling apart. You just see it disappearing into these huge dust clouds. So that's basically the theory. um, It's basically uh, coaxial, coherent beams of long wavelength microwave radiation that are precisely controlled so as to create a zone of constructive interference that can be precisely controlled so as to traverse down the building and deliver the destructive energy to where it's needed to produce the destruction. And to me, this theory comports very well with some of the other observations of exactly what happened. For instance, the way the steel seems to have kind of melted in midair and been cleansed of its insulation, the way that the concrete is so thoroughly pulverized, the heat of the microwaves would have been delivered to the concrete so as to cause instant vaporization of the of about 1% water vapor in even well cured concrete, causing it to blow apart. And it would blow papers out of the building because the papers wouldn't pick up much of the heat from the radiation, whereas things like file cabinets and other things would. So they would just be, you know, melted and squished down and the steel would turn into like wet noodles and all that in just the space of a few seconds.
0: Does such a device as a maser exist?
1: Oh, masers exist. Maser is like a laser. It's a a, a stimulated emission device where you have some way of pumping energy into it and you get this coherent wavelength that bounces back and forth, and it keeps adding up until it breaks through one of the sides of it, and then you have just a very coherent beam. Coherent, again, meaning that all the oscillation is synchronized, and it's exactly the same wavelength, all exactly the same phase shift and orientation. So it's the same principle applied to a much longer wavelength. The wavelength I'm talking about is like almost in between microwave and radio wavelength. What I also is that I'm talking about a very specific application of masers where you have these multiple superimposed coaxial beams generated so as to superimpose and do this constructive interference thing.
0: How did you come up with this theory?
1: Well, just um, looking at the pattern of destruction and trying to think of something that would fit it. Because other people have talked about Using microwave interferometry, but they've talked about like projecting one beam up and another beam across from some other building, like Building 7. But those don't make sense to me because I would think you'd see an asymmetry based on where the beam is coming from, and you'd see some other manifestations of it that would be visible. But what's so striking about the way that the towers self destruct is the way that the zone of destruction so clearly marches down the building and, and the way it stays so symmetric and, and all that. And it, there's also an elegance to it because. All you have to do is, if this device exists, this super high energy maser that can create these multiple superimposed beams that can create a zone of destruction and control it, all that the perpetrators would have to do would be to drive these trucks into the sub-basement. It eliminates the need to rig the buildings with explosives or to have some ship out in the Hudson that projects a beam or something coming from space. There's other reasons that I find other variants of those theories not very plausible. Like if it was some space weapon, they would – there'd be too much of a problem with scattering of the beam. You know, there's a lot of these theories are very implausible. And one thing I'd add is that even even the theory that I just laid out has a very high unbelievability factor. And I think that even though I find it the most plausible theory that I've seen, I think that if you consider that 9-11 was a psychological operation, it was designed to traumatize people and to prevent people from discovering the truth, then the very means that they look for to accomplish the attack are the ones that will simply have a high unbelievability factor around. So, you know, you talk of high energy weapons, it just sounds, it just sounds like science fiction. Too bizarre to be believed.
0: How strong of an energy source would you need to operate something like a maser?
1: Oh, well, uh, like a laser comes in all different, you know, you can have once in all different energy levels, like, you know, you have those little lasers on pens. Those are very low energy. What I'm talking about is a maser of such high energy that there's no public knowledge of anything that energetic existing. I'm talking about, you know, very high energy, 1.5 gigawatt hours of energy in 15 seconds is a huge energy flux. Another thing about this theory that it agrees with in terms of the physical evidence is this, another rather, Bizarre observation of the attack and the collapses is that there is this afterglow that's observed in both tower collapses that occurs about, in the case of the North Tower, I think it's 17 seconds after the collapse starts. Suddenly the sky gets really bright right above where the tower was. This is observable on all the video recordings that show that part of the collapse. All of a sudden everything gets much brighter. And if you think of this theory you think that as it's destroying the building and once the building completely falls away you have kind of this beam that's still there and it's just illuminating the sky and then the next thing that happens is that the whole mechanism destroys itself because there's so much excess heat energy, the whole device just melts. And of course, it would be designed that way because part of the objective is to destroy the evidence of how this was accomplished. But
0: where would they get the energy to run this device? Oh, well,
1: that's a good question. You know, if it only required a eight-inch cable to pipe it in, you can imagine an eight-inch cable being run for hundreds of miles to some big energy storage facility or some who knows what. That is a part of the theory that's another kind of incredible thing. How did they pipe in that much energy? I estimate that it would take about a tenth of the volume of Building 7 in supercapacitors to store that much energy just for one tower.
0: Well, what about the electrical substation under World Trade Center 7? Would that have been enough?
1: Well, yeah, but that's that's like a switching station with transformers. It's not an energy storage facility. So you'd need some way of actually piping the energy in. One thing that's very important to understand is how much of the budget of the Pentagon and secret government agencies are completely off the map. How much the budget's off the map and how much money they have to explore, you know, technologies that there's no information in the public about and that these operations are run on a need to know basis so that not a lot of people need to know what the full picture is if there is some device that exists, some incredible technology that we have no idea about another thing that seems kind of implausible is how many people would be needed to construct such a thing. Well, if you understand how the military works and how how much things are done on a need-to-know basis, people have like their own little box and they work on some part of a project, but they don't have a clue about what the larger picture is. And so I think that's probably another thing that's really important to understand in how the September 11th attack, if it's an inside job, was pulled off is that it was probably a very small group of people, but that they employed a lot more extensive resources through the use of Technologies and things that were developed, you know, as part of these large off-book budgets and things like that.
0: So who knows? The energy source could have been something out of a black ops operation, non-lethal weapons, who knows?
1: Yeah. uh Microwave energy can be beamed from space. Like they can have a fairly focused microwave beam that will beam down huge amounts of energy from space to some receiver. Of course, you need a, a receiving station to receive it and then somewhere to convey the energy, and that couldn't have been in downtown Manhattan. You know, but like I said, if with a really thick copper cable, you could have delivered the energy for hundreds of miles.
0: But you don't have a theory as to what the energy source was. It could have been anything.
1: It's just electrical energy. So basically, you need some way of producing it at some source and then delivering it or some way of storing it, maybe on-site in Building 7 or something like that. You know, it's just electrical energy. It just so it doesn't it's, have...
0: So it's feasible to have done that, yeah, in yeah, your opinion. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What about the evidence at the crime scene? The the remains, the the pieces of steel, the pulverized concrete. Now this is the evidence that would need to be examined to answer the mystery of how did it happen? How did the towers collapse? How did World Trade Center 7 collapse? In order to determine such a thing, an investigation would have to be held and the evidence would have to be examined. What happened to all of the refuse and the rubble at the World Trade Center?
1: Well, before answering that, I just want to emphasize the importance of this issue of analyzing that evidence. Because clearly what we had here in the total collapse of uh, these completely unprecedented events, the total collapse of uh, World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7, the, nothing like that has ever happened with fire primarily in the case of the Twin Towers or exclusively in the case of Building 7 being blamed for the total collapse of a steel-framed skyscraper. Nothing like that's ever happened. So, Clearly, the collapse of these three buildings were the three largest and most mysterious engineering failures in the history of the world, without a doubt. So, you know, certainly they warranted the most careful and painstaking investigation. I mean, the the Ground Zero was far more important than any archaeological site or anything in terms of the amount of care that should have been taken in documenting the evidence and preserving the evidence to discover what the nature of these structural failures was for you know, even accepting the official story so the buildings could be made safe so that this phenomenon couldn't happen again. But yet, when you actually look at what happened and the way that they treated Ground Zero, in the initial aftermath, they were talking about rescue operations, even though it was clear that there were virtually no survivors. They pulled out just a couple of people within the first few days of the attack, I think, and then nobody after that. And meanwhile, they were sifting through Ground Zero. They sealed off the area And highly controlled who could see Ground Zero. They threatened people with arrest for even attempting to take photographs of Ground Zero. And meanwhile, they started ramping up the um, removal of the steel. And what did they do with the steel? Did they take it to a warehouse for further study? Did they photograph the site and carefully document where the pieces came from and, you know, make grids and, you know, carefully preserve, you know, carefully document the crime scene and then carefully preserve the evidence? Well, um, (laughs) the fact is pretty opposite from that. They started to remove the steel almost immediately and started shipping it away. Within 11 days of the attack, the city accepted a a plan from Controlled Demolition Incorporated to recycle the steel. That meant that the steel would be um, removed from the site and shipped to blast furnaces in India and China as quickly as possible. They'd be shipped overseas and then melted down so that it couldn't be analyzed any further. Meanwhile, FEMA was entrusted with the sole authority to investigate this incident, even though FEMA is not an investigative agency. FEMA assembled a group of volunteer investigators from the American Society of Civil Engineers – And this was basically the only investigative body. The investigators were unfunded. It was a strictly volunteer effort. And these investigators weren't even allowed access to Ground Zero. Rather, they were maybe allowed to see some pieces of steel that ended up at Fishkill's landfill where they were sifting through some of the rubble to hopefully find remains of survivors. Meanwhile, the vast majority of the steel never even stopped there. It just was loaded on ships and shipped off to Asia. By the time this group of engineers the building performance assessment team that FEMA had assembled wrote their report in i think may of 2002 they as we talked about indicated that further study was necessary to determine the cause of these collapses well how convenient that by the time they released the report the ground zero had been thoroughly scrubbed and all the ste- virtually all the steel was completely destroyed except for a few artifacts that NIST has and is supposedly still studying. And there's a, you know just a few pieces out of hundreds of thousands of pieces of steel. And the few pieces that they do have, they don't even have any idea where it came from. So it was clearly an effort to prevent genuine investigation from taking place of these just completely unprecedented failures. Now, in the case of the Twin Towers... One of the excuses for destroying the steel was, well, they had to remove it to find any possible survivors and get it out of there as fast as possible because it was still a rescue effort at that point. But in the case of Building 7, there was no one thought to be buried in the rubble. So what was the big hurry of removing the the rubble in Building 7? And even in the case of the main part of Ground Zero, the, the Twin Towers, the really rapid part of the cleanup operation started around November when it was no longer officially a rescue effort. But then they... Rudolf Giuliani severely limited the number of New York City Fire Department personnel who could be on the site. They were trying to recover the remains of their fallen brothers in the fire department. And the rate of cleanup rapidly accelerated. They brought in really large machinery. They even built new infrastructure in the form of docks to expedite the removal of the steel— They put GPS locators on the trucks that were hauling the steel to the barges at the expense of $1,000 a pop to make sure that the steel didn't go anywhere other than to the blast furnaces, apparently. I call this section highly sensitive garbage. And given that the people in charge considered the steel garbage useless to any investigation in this age of computer simulations, and that's referring to a quote of Mayor Bloomberg who said, if you want to take a look at the construction methods and the design, that's in this day of age what computers do. Just looking at a piece of metal generally doesn't tell you anything. So you have the mayor who succeeded Giuliani basically saying, well, there's no point in preserving the evidence because we can just model it all with computers. So the people running the cleanup operation clearly were trying to get it out of there as quickly as possible. They clearly, supposedly considered it just useless. And yet they installed these GPS locator devices on all the trucks hauling away the rubble and the security documented this case in which one of the drivers of the truck um, took a extended lunch break of an hour and a half and was dismissed.
0: So they could electronically monitor the movement of all of the trucks carting away the rubble from the World Trade Center. Right. And if there was any deviation, you mentioned this yeah. guy who took a long lunch, he got fired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was all monitored mm-hmm. to make sure that nobody interfered with the removal of this rubble.
1: Right. And as I said, also, they made sure people didn't f- take photographs either. Now, there are some photographs of Ground Zero because some of the people working at Ground Zero apparently took some photographs on the sly and so forth. Some of those have made it to the web. But there's remarkably little public evidence, even at Ground Zero, because they were so strict in preventing people from doing anything that would have documented what was actually there and what, what the rubble looked like and, you know, anything that would have, would have been useful to a real investigation.
0: How did the firemen on the scene feel about this? Were they pretty much... After initially allowed to search for a fallen fireman, were they then chased off the scene?
1: Yes, on November second, Rudolf Giuliani basically barred the fire department personnel from Crown Zero because they were very interested in recovering the remains from the hundreds of firefighters who were killed when the towers collapsed. So they were extremely upset when they were barred from ground zero and the only people who were allowed on ground zero were the people who were cutting up the steel and getting it out of there as quickly as possible. This happened immediately after they recovered about $200 million worth of gold and as soon as they recovered that gold, then they stepped up the pace of the removal operation and barred all but a few um, FDNY firefighters from the scene. The firefighters were so upset that they – there was a major altercation where it broke out between the firefighters and the Giuliani's police who were barring them from the site.
0: Now, you mentioned the recovery of gold. Where was gold recovered from?
1: Well, there were vaults in the basement of World Trade Center 4. Now, note that that's to the east of the South Tower, so it's not directly under the the most intense area of destruction. And it's not clear how much precious metals were stored in these vaults because there was a lot of secrecy around it. There are some rumors that as much as $160 billion of gold bullion was stored um, in these vaults. But when I researched the amount that I could account for from records um, prior to the September 11th, I came up with a total that I could account for of about $950 million between the silver and the gold in the Comics vaults. So that Comex was the company that apparently controlled this vault in World Trade Center 4. And yet, the only news reports from late October, early November that talk about the actual amount of gold recovered put the amount at, quote, more than $230 million. Now, there's a big gap between $230 million and $950 million. And $950 million is almost certainly a very conservative estimate because there might have been multiple times the amount of that stored and not and no public record of it. Further adding to this is the fact that i read reports that there was a 10-wheeled truck discovered crushed with a load of gold in it in one of the subterranean roads at Grand Zero, that there was no dead people around the truck, but the, the truck was apparently carrying gold away from the vault and had been abandoned sometime during this disaster. So there seems to be some evidence that there was a concerted operation to remove the gold and yet pretend that the gold had somehow been destroyed in the tremendously destructive event of the collapse of the Twin Towers. Well, I would remind people that gold is a dense, malleable metal that doesn't simply vaporize or <laughs> turn into something else or you know, otherwise disappear.
0: Who owned the World Trade Center, specifically the Twin Towers, World Trade Center 7, actually the whole World Trade Center... That was built with public funds, right? Well,
1: except for Building 7, which is kind of the anomaly because it wasn't really part of the original World Trade Center. I say that it's World Trade Center in name only. The rest of the World Trade Center complex was built by the port authority with public money but only came under private control in the summer of 2001 when Silverstein – the owner and the person who built World Trade Center 7 acquired control of the entire World Trade Center complex through a 99-year lease that only closed apparently six weeks before the disaster. So the entire World Trade Center complex went into private hands for the first time merely weeks before the disaster. And furthermore, Silverstein, as part of the purchase deal or before the disaster, secured a handsome insurance policy that would be worth, I think, $3.6 billion for the entire trade center. Subsequent to the attack, Silverstein has tried to collect twice over the entire valuation, that is $7.2 billion, because he considers the event two separate attacks and thinks that he's entitled to two separate payments on the insurance, even though the insurance of $3.6 billion only reflected the value of the entire complex. Furthermore, this owner only put up I think a few hundred million dollars of, or maybe only about $100 million of real money to acquire this asset and to acquire this insurance policy that would allow him to recover billions of dollars. Now, the outcome of this insurance claim in terms of the double claim is still up in the air and it's, I think it's still going through the courts. But I think he's already recovered the $3.6 billion. PSYOPs being how people are shocked into not understanding what they're seeing. You know. See, the way I describe it is the events of September 11th were precisely choreographed in order to put people in a state of shock that by the time we got to the main event, that is the destruction of the Twin Towers, which were the most direct attack on people's psyche, was the core of the attack. People were so psychologically numb by all this happened up to that by the, imp- the extremely improbable series of events in which the unbelievability, in which the shockiness of the events was ratcheting up. From, you know, one plane that was hijacked with knives to two planes that were hijacked with knives to the Pentagon, supposedly the most well-defended building in the entire world was hit, you know, just left wide open to attack. Then by the time the Twin Towers started to come down, I think people were not in a critical state of mind. They were just in this open state of shock, willing to accept whatever the news anchors were dishing out at that point which is the towers fell down Osama bin Laden Osama bin Laden you know flashing his mugshot on the screen and and just uh, driving home this pavlovian association between the alleged perpetrators who miraculously they had all figured out on September 11th and these horrendous destructive events but when you look at it on a logical in a kind of logical way several people have pointed out why would the attack be spread out so that the attack started with the takeover of flight 11 which was at like 8:20, and then the, and then you had the tower attacks happening just before 9 o'clock, and then you the Pentagon hitting hit 9:40, and then not until almost 10 o'clock did the tower start to fall down. Why was it spread out so much? Which would seem to make the story much more implausible because it makes the whole air defense. Stand down looked much more obvious. I mean, if they had an almost an hour and a half from the time that Flight Eleven was taken over to the time the Pentagon was attacked, what possible excuse did they have to not scramble jets? And this whole thing about Bush and the continuing to read the goat story in the classroom and not being whisked away by the Secret Service, even though the second tower had already been hit, and the fact that the four top men in the, the military establishment who were in charge of the military response to this were supposedly pretty much clueless until the Pentagon got hit, or were watching either that or they were watching. Flight 77 approached the Pentagon and trying to figure out what to do, you know, even though we have this entire air defense network in place. So it really doesn't make any sense on that level. Logically, it seems like a big red flag that they spread the attack out so much. But if you look at it from the point of view of psychological engineering and how the attack was spread out in order to give that sense of shock, time to sink into people, so that by the time we got to the main event, the Twin Tower demolition, people were in such a state of disbelief and shock almost in kind of a conditioned sense of the way people suspend disbelief when they watch movies. I think that's a big part of it. So many people describe the attack on the day as being like a disaster movie. I mean, it had the same kind of scenes. It had, you know, these dust clouds chasing people down streets in Manhattan. And I think that that was a big part of how it was engineered to tap into people's conditioning to suspend disbelief when they see events of such, you know, these horrible events descending on Manhattan in particular, which is one of the most common settings of such disaster films.
0: I've been speaking with Jim Hoffman. You've been listening to Part 2 of Your Eyes Don't Lie, Common Sense, Physics, and the World Trade Center Collapses. Jim Hoffman has been researching the World Trade Center Collapses since February 2003 and has created an extensive website reporting his investigations and other aspects of the September 11th attacks. He can be contacted by email at jim at WTC7.net Visit his website at www.wtc7.net That's www.wtc7.net Sound on today's show was recorded by Kelia Ramirez Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yaro Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner To leave comments or order copies of our shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G, and our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Of your own cypher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life you know what i'm saying look what's inside yourself for peace give thanks live life and release you dig me you got me